You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about grief. Joining me is Dr. Consuelo Cagande, who's an attending psychiatrist and the division chief of the Community Care and Wellness Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Cagande. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start by defining grief. I think we all viscerally know what this is, especially if we've lost someone special to us. But can you define the difference between mourning and grief? Yeah, sure. And, and sometimes people use these two words interchangeably, but there is a difference. Mourning is a psychological process where there's a reaction that starts immediately after a loss. And usually one starts to express thoughts and feelings, which is normal and a healthy process. Examples of mourning include like wearing black or in some culture white to honor the death. And sharing stories and memories and crying is an expression of mourning. And where mourning is an external expression of thoughts and feelings, grief, on the other hand, is an internal emotion where there's more intense sorrow. And it's just not thoughts and feelings, but now you have behavioral, physical, social, and psychological reactions. For example, some will say that it's painful. I'm in pain after a death, especially if you had a close bond with a deceased. So physical symptoms can be an internal expression of grief as well. Other examples are like loss of appetite, difficulty sleeping. And some have feelings even of heaviness and can even express anger. Now, often the grief reaction that we see in our pediatric patients occurs after the loss of a parent or sibling. But how commonly does this happen that children are experiencing grief from the loss of a close family member? Yeah, I mean, the recent census that I'm aware of um, in terms of the prevalence rate of grief in children, there's actually one in 20 under the age of 15 experiencing death of a one or both biological parents. One in five will experience death of someone close to them even by age 18. Approximately 74,000 children apparently die per year, and 83% of those leave a sibling behind. And at least one million children live in a single parent household because of death of one parent. So it is more common than we may think and may not even be aware kids are experiencing a significant loss and even going through grief. Mm -hmm. It's really important that you mention the sibling piece as we take care of our pediatric patients. If we know of a patient in our practice who's passed away, that we should be thinking about the potential grief reaction that their siblings may have who may also be our patients. Exactly. So in medical school, I remember learning about the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Do children go through these same stages? They can. But with children specifically, there's a grief uh, researcher, William Warden, who identified four general common grief reactions in children. First is feelings such as anxiety or anger. Second is physical sensations such as feeling short of breath. Third is the cognitive um, aspect, which is can be 
denial or preoccupation about the deceased. And the fourth is behavior, such as crying or even avoiding reminders of the deceased. These seem more developmentally appropriate for young children. And these are normal. And just like adults who go through the Kubler-Ross stages, the child does not need to go through all stages or in any particular order. In terms of um, helping children with these stages of warden, he also developed stages of tasks to help kids process the grief. First is to accept the reality of the loss, then helping them work through the pain and emotional aspects of the grief, then helping them adjust to an environment in which the disease is missing, such as not present for dinner or sports event, and then lastly, helping them find ways to relocate the deceased person with one's life and to even memorialize the person, such as planting a tree or help set up a foundation in their memory. Mm, those are really great suggestions. Thank you. Now, in our clinic, sometimes kids come in with signs or symptoms of grief, but we may not recognize them and the parents might not recognize them as being related to grief because, as you mentioned, sometimes it's things that are felt physically or changes in behaviors. So you mentioned some, but what are some of the ways that a child might present in primary care clinic that are actually symptoms of grief? Yeah, children can have what's called masked grief reactions when psychosomatic symptoms, for example, headaches, can be the complaints as a way to cope. For the younger children especially, based on where they are at developmentally, they might not be able to express feelings or thoughts and thus present more with physical symptoms. Common complaints can be, in addition to headaches, are GI disturbances, even incontinence, and sleep problems, including nightmares. Sadness is very common. They can be even irritable, and even oppositional and defiant are also common. We might think of another diagnosis such as ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, but this might be actual grief they're going through. And some kids may even have a decline in their grades at school. There was actually a survey of teachers who reported that the most common symptom that they found in, in students who were going through grief was difficulty concentrating, which is mostly anxiety-driven and or preoccupation about the disease-driven. So it's worth asking if there has been a death in the family or a loved one or even a friend. And if these signs and symptoms began after uh, a death, the child may actually be grieving. That's a great point to take some of those somatic and behavioral symptoms and put them in the context of a recent loss. And so maybe asking the timing of when these symptoms started in relation to the recent loss of a loved one. So thank you for that reminder. Now, parents often ask me how much their child understands about death. What are the developmental stages of understanding death? Yes. So we have to think about the different cognitive developmental age. So in the preschool age, they don't yet comprehend death as permanent. Death is temporary to them. And often they will ask, you know, when will dad return? They also grieve in births, meaning one moment they'll ask and want to talk about the loss for a few minutes. And then mm -hmm. maybe five, 10 minutes later, they're resuming play with friends as if nothing happened or they're, you know, with their siblings, only then to ask later again more questions about the death. 
This is part of normal development and should not be pathologized. Sometimes, you know, parents might wonder why their child is not crying or or thinking that this is more serious, but they really, really grieve differently. And this is also the age in the preschool age of magical thinking, you know, imaginary friends, pretend play. Again, they don't see that death is permanent. And young children don't have the ability to express or understand their feelings or thoughts. So they tend to externalize their feelings. As I mentioned, they could have behavioral presentations instead. Now, when they are at the school age, about 7 to 11 years old, they focus more on themselves as related to the death, meaning who's going to bring me to school, you know, if the that parent uh, used to bring them to school, or who's going to pick me up? Who's going to tuck me into bed? And they also start to understand that death is actually final. and they will ask more specific and even questions about death and why people die or how people die. There can be also anxiety about the surviving relatives and caregiver, and this might be at the period where they might start to show some separation anxiety. Magical thinking can be still present, but they also have a more sense of guilt, self-blame, or even fear. And when it comes to the older age group, such as the adolescents, maybe 13 or older, now this is a stage where they think more about moral, philosophical, ethical, social, and political issues. And they can actually deduct logic and reasoning more from general principles to specific information. And at this age as well, and parents should be mindful too and not worry that they can actually turn to their peers more for support. So parents, you know, should be reassured and not worry that they won't talk to them, but they really turn more to their peers. And at this age, they tend to mask grief more often and they want to appear normal, that nothing's bothering them. They can also have externalizing and internalizing patterns that can lead to risk-taking behaviors, such as drugs. And religion, spirituality may play an important part in their life at this stage. So it's important to reinforce maybe some of their religious or cultural aspects at this age. And parents also really need to support their adolescents, even though they turn to their peers more. Mm -hmm. And the schools are a great support, as you mentioned earlier, our teachers, but also guidance counselors and school psychologists who can often detect some of these symptoms in kids and and many times actually have little meetings and support groups for students within the school setting. So that's something for parents to potentially ask their school about if they think their child might be struggling. Right. And communicating with, you know, school counselors and teachers who are aware of the death in the family to just check in, you know, how do they see or how do they, how their child at school because they might be behaving or thinking differently at school than at home. Right. Now, using the developmental stage framework that you just discussed, another question I get is whether or not a child should attend the funeral of a deceased loved one. So how do we make this determination? Yes. So there is really no right or wrong answer to this. It is a personal choice. It is something to discuss with a child and have them make that decision And it's okay to encourage a child to attend funerals, even wakes of their parent or sibling or a loved one, as long as there is adequate support, especially with the younger children. You shouldn't force them to attend. 
give them the choice, as I mentioned, and it's okay if they don't want to. If they want to go, preparing them on what usually happens at funerals and burials, what they may see, for instance, and talking about what is the process or the of the wake or the funerals, these tend to ease anxiety and sometimes alleviate the shock that they might encounter when seeing their loved one in a casket or how others are behaving while during the wake and funeral. Generally, ages seven or eight and above are appropriate ages to be allowed to attend funerals. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, that age is around when they start to understand that death is final. Lastly, if they don't want to attend the funeral, some suggest maybe plant a tree or release a lantern, which are part of some traditions such as in Asia. So as you mentioned, there are cultural differences in how we respond to death. There may be variable practices in terms of mourning versus celebrating the dead, as well as how long and how publicly this is done. So how can we sensitively respond to these cultural differences in assessing the impact on a child's grief? We can respond by being aware, asking, and respecting. Knowing that each culture has their way of grieving through traditional rituals based on their religious beliefs is important. Asking family members how death is perceived in their culture is very important. Asking if there are any rituals that I, like for instance, if I'm the physician, I should be aware of. Or how do they prepare the body for burials or cremation? By asking it shows you are tuned and empathic. It's also important to actively listen to what they are saying and how they are describing understanding that expected emotions and behavior can be present. Asking about what form can others express condolences, for example, are flowers allowed? Are donations allowed? Are memorials allowed? Expressions of grief are different from one culture to another. For some culture, grieving must be private. For others, a public display is the norm. And you may want to ask the guardian or parent first if it is appropriate to ask a child about the death Or is it okay to ask about their feelings, especially? You know, it's important to educate the family about the impact of death that it might have on a child so that they can monitor. But respecting their beliefs and how they culturally handle grief is important. You would not want them to be forced to talk about it because that can cause them to not go back to you if symptoms do get worse and they need help or support. Great points. And I know sometimes when pediatricians have a patient in their practice who passes away, the pediatrician often attends the funeral or the wake. And I know many of us inquire about what the cultural practice may be so that we can appropriately respond to the grieving family in that situation. So great. You made some great points for us. Now, when a death is sudden or violent, there may be PTSD as well as grief. So what are some of the ways that we can distinguish PTSD from grief symptoms? Yeah, so PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and something that is similar is called complicated grief, where grief symptoms have been prolonged and maladaptive patterns develop as well as cognitions and behaviors compared to what's called uncomplicated grief, which is not as chronic or persistent and can actually be normal or just having adjustment phase. So yeah, death can be traumatic for children. Some call complicated grief, traumatic grief, where as I mentioned, it's a prolonged 
manifestations that interfere with functioning and even have difficulty recalling positive memories of deceased, the cognitive part of it. But there are three overarching symptoms that can distinguish PTSD from complicated grief, and they are affective, cognitive or behavioral, and sleep. Now, in PTSD, the anxiety is focused on more on the fear of recurrent danger, not necessarily related to the death, where in grief, the focus is on the loss or the deceased loved one. Now, in PTSD, in terms of behavior, it's usually associated with fear or preoccupied thoughts and images of a specific traumatic event, where in complicated grief, the core symptom can be similar, but the thoughts or memories are more related to the deceased. Now, for sleep disturbance, PTSD usually has nightmares, and those nightmares are related to traumatic events. And you can have nightmares in grief, but usually are not present. And again, I think the key thing is that, is there a specific traumatic event versus is there a death of a loved one? But in milder forms, children could be going through just an adjustment period and may just require monitoring over time, even if these symptoms are not present. And I'll put in a plug for you that if pediatricians are having trouble distinguishing the PTSD from grief symptoms, this is a great opportunity to reach out to your local psychologist or psychiatrist to help with those patients as they can be more complicated. Yes, exactly. And what's nice about in terms of, you know, primary care practices nowadays, they have collaborations with mental health professionals that they can definitely reach out to anytime. Now, COVID impacts everything, and it's estimated that 1.5 million children around the world lost a parent due to COVID. So how can we support our patients who are grieving during this ongoing pandemic? Yes. Uh, so the past year, or almost two years now, has definitely been challenging for everyone and, and have at least someone knows of either a loved one or friend or neighbor have died from COVID. What we can do is to help them through the normal process of grief, as well as reassuring and helping them feel safe. Again, allowing them to express emotions and even encouraging it is important. It's you know important to show that it's okay to talk about it, to ask, and if you don't feel okay, it's okay. And it's important to let the adults know this also. The adults left behind to support the child can't protect a child from feeling, thinking, and behaving after a death, but it's important for the adults to model that it's okay to cry and talk and remember the deceased over time, as I mentioned. All of this can help build character and coping skills they can use when faced with adversities in the future. And that's really what's important as we all, you know, go through the pandemic together and it's tested a lot of our, you know, coping skills, you know, through adversity. But every child, again, though, will grieve differently, like adults, and not forcing them to talk about it can also help. So some kids may have guilt or wish they had more time to tell the loved one, like, I love you, I wish I had more time. And you might want to suggest that they write a letter as a form of saying goodbye or to have a closure. It's also important to maintain some type of normalcy, such as maintaining daily routines that were in place prior to the death. Of course, not being in school and being in remote learning for about a year or so is not normal, but 
stressing that it is a new normal and now given that everyone is doing it and going through it. And when they do ask questions, you want to be honest and clear. And it's okay to not have all, not have all the answers as well. Now, when one of our patients needs treatment for their grief, what types of therapies should I recommend? Yeah, so depending on the severity of the symptoms, a child may not necessarily need further treatment other than supportive from their pediatrician and adults who are with them. But if they do have symptoms that are severe enough that they interfere with functioning and are prolonged, such as complicated or traumatic grief, there are bereavement counselors or perhaps family bereavement centers that may be available in the community. An effective therapy module is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which is very effective in children and adolescents with depression and anxiety especially. Specifically for traumatic grief, there is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, TFCBT. And there is also what's called integrated grief therapy for children who draws cognitive, behavioral, family systems, and narrative approaches to therapy. So all these have actually been shown to help the child who is grieving. Well, this is a heavy topic, but thank you so much for walking us through it and helping us better be able to support these patients in our practice. We appreciate all of the things that you do for our patients at CHOP. Tell us a little bit about the CHOP program that you're involved in. Yeah, so I'm the division chief of our community care and wellness in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at CHOP. So one of our main programs is the Integrated Behavioral Health, where we have clinicians, licensed clinical social worker and psychologists embedded in primary care uh, practices uh, of CHOP, where we work with the pediatricians and support their patients who are going through some symptoms of depression, anxiety, or even grief, or even behavior, sleep problems. And we also have a few psychiatrists embedded in some primary care sites where we can also you know, be consulted for medications or do a medication evaluation. So we really work side by side with pediatricians because you, know, you are our gatekeepers for a lot of these patients who need mental health interventions. Well, I'm very fortunate to work alongside your program and hope that it continues to spread not only at CHOP, but nationally, because this is such an important resource. So thank you for all that you do. And thank you for teaching us more about grief today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes, or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.